one. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of the People's Podcast, a podcast where I talk to people, get their people's podcast, a podcast where I talk to people, get their opinions, and importantly, educate you with relevant pop cultural experiences. <laughs> and of course, today is the first time on the channel when I'm talking about Star Wars. Uh, quite a surprise, I'm sure, if anyone knows me. With me today is my esteemed guest, Miles Lovell. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself, Miles? Hi, thank you very much for having me. I, I had no idea that this was the penultimate uh, podcast, or rather the first one. So I, I feel quite I'm extra honored now uh, to be here. Thank you. Um, um, my name is Miles Lovell. I'm a uh, master's student at the Geneva Academy of International Humanitarian Law and Human Rights in Geneva, Switzerland. Um, I'm from South Africa, like Emilio, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm quite interested in both Star Wars and war uh, in general, specifically the legal framework surrounding the use of force. That's sort of what I'm looking at um, at the moment. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I think that this podcast is an excellent idea, um, and I think that Star Wars is a good vehicle to uh, discuss really important issues like these. Yeah, so, that, yeah, that actually sort of brings us to sort of the talking about this, you see. Um, we, we make the mistake, Miles and I, of talking to people on Facebook and, <laughs> and, to and talking to people on interest groups about Facebook's, on, on Facebook stuff. And um, one of the mistakes that we made, well, he made it first and then he broke me in, was talking about a particular Facebook post regarding the destruction of the first Death Star. And yes. Well, Miles, why don't you, you tell the people about exactly what had happened? Um, so I, I think the, the issue that was raised initially, actually, it, it, it was a post about, about it, it was equating Leia and I think Anakin. Um, and the, one of the comments in it was just sort of a, an innocent joke, really, about, um, you know, the, nothing, the, the, this guy's got nothing on Leia's war crimes, you know, the genocide that she's committed. Um, and I, I don't think that there was any sort of real uh, harmful intent behind it. But the, you know, the comment section, as always, devolved into a, uh, a feces flinging festival. And um, <laughs> I, I sort of got myself stuck in the middle of it. Um, by, I decided it would be a good idea to, to weigh in and just sort of say, hey, this is, this is the actual legal position. This is the definition of genocide. I don't think Leia's actions amount to it. I think they are, uh, you know, it's a series of, of military actions that resulted in a lot of deaths. But that does not constitute the crime of genocide in the legal definition even if it is, you know, killing a lot of people, um, it's an important distinction. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, several people were not quite as um, uh, straightforward about their, their approach as me. And, uh, <laughs> and we, got, yeah, we, we got into some interesting debates, um, which, which, again, um, it raised some good points about how people perceive these crimes. Mm. Um, and I was, I was hoping through this that we could, we could sort of try to elucidate that a bit, uh, make it a bit clearer. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> this is um, this is exactly the reason why I wanted to do something like this because a I don't know diddly about human rights law, uh, and I don't think most people actually know anything about human rights law. And yeah. oftentimes, when people think about things like, for example, a genocide, which is a very serious thing, um, hmm. we are not really equipped to think about it in a way that kind of reflects the way that the law thinks about it. Oftentimes, the law will think about something in a different way to the way that people think about something. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, the definitions of words <laughs> under law is, are often completely different from the common usage. Yeah, exactly. Um, and this, this disparity between what people think and the way that the law thinks means that oftentimes 
uh, when when people are just talking about what what's actually happening around them, they are not really equipped to do so in a way that the law is uh, thinking about it. And there's this disconnection between the way that you know crimes tend to be perceived and the way that people think about crimes. And uh, <clears throat> Star Wars is a great vehicle for talking about this because most of us have seen Star Wars. Uh, even people who don't like Star Wars have seen Star Wars. And so <laughs> um, it's, it's a very interesting uh, perspective because I think the morality of Star Wars is very cut and dry, or at least... That's the way that it was designed. Uh, you know, George Lucas very clearly wrote the Death Star as an allegory of a fascist regime and uh, mm. the Rebel Alliance as sort of a mishmash of different uh, resistance groups, most notably the Vietnamese, uh, because mm. America was currently in the Vietnam War. And so it, it makes it quite easy. Um, so we have two things to talk about today. Um, the first is uh, the destruction of the first Death Star. We'll start off nice and strong. And then uh, we'll talk about something a little bit less well-known, and that is the uh, Trade Federation blockade of Naboo. So, um, yeah, the Battle of Yavin. Um, let me first uh, first say that uh, it is probably one of the most memorable moments in a Star Wars movie because I think it has a lot of the nice one-liners that um, oh, definitely. <laughs> everyone remembers use the Force, Luke. Um, exactly. And uh, it, it is, of course, uh, important because it's also one of the big uh, space battles that is really put to f uh, 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 film. And uh, I still have very fond memories of it, um, just sort of thinking about it. And it is a really very small-scale battle. So what actually happens? Well, uh, in case you haven't watched Star Wars uh, recently like I have, <laughs> um, the, um, the Death Star is a large space station, um, not like the ISS, uh, way bigger. It's actually about the size of a moon, and um, it has a but weapon. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but it has a weapon on it, uh, which is capable of destroying planets. In fact, uh, it actually does that. Um, the inciting incident, you you could say, uh, that prompts the rebel uh, rebellion into making an attack on the Death Star is the fact that Alderaan, a planet that is an open resistance uh, to the Empire, is destroyed. The entire planet. Uh, I'm not talking about, oh, you know, maybe a city is destroyed. I'm, I'm talking about they shoot a giant laser and the entire planet explodes in a ball of light. And um, that is a genocide. <laughs> that is very deliberately an act or of genocide. It? Or is it? We'll get into it. Um, but after the, the destruction of Alderaan, um, not uh, soon after, um, the Rebel Alliance does decide that they do need to destroy the Death Star. And um, the entire point of the first movie is basically delivering secret plans about the Death Star to the Rebels so they can figure out a weakness to destroy it. And to that end, they launch a, a couple of squadrons of starfighters, most notably including Luke Skywalker, and they do a little bit of dogfighting. Surprisingly, yeah. they don't actually do all that much. Uh, you would think that something like the Death Star would just be able to drown the X-Wings in TIE Fighters, but um, for a number of reasons, this doesn't happen. And uh, Luke manages to destroy the Death Star um, with a single well-placed proton torpedo that goes down the one completely exposed exhaust vent and destroys the entire thing <laughs> in a wall of light. And uh, yeah, then afterwards, Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, but not Chewbacca, not importantly, not Chewbacca. They all get medals uh, and they're hailed as heroes. And uh, yeah, that's the, the sort of the inciting context. Uh, Miles, why don't you, yeah. you, you start talking exactly uh, through some of the legal arguments here? 
Okay. Okay. Well, before we even before we even touch on the Death Star, um, there's there's one thing that you keep you keep saying, which I think is an important point to distinguish with, right? Uh, is you keep mentioning human rights law in mm. this regard, um, and and there are there are actually two major legal systems dealing with uh, loss of life, um, both in armed conflicts and in peacetime. Mm -hmm. uh, there's in human rights law, which we're all familiar with, you know, the protection of, of certain human rights, and then there's humanitarian law. Oh, okay. um, which, while very similar sounding, is, is a completely different field, and it's actually what I'm more specialized in. Um, oh. it, that is the law of war, the law of armed conflict, as the USA likes to call it. Hmm. Uh, and it, it is very specifically designed in a very pragmatic way, whereas human rights law is more sort of idealistic. Um, humanitarian law is incredibly pragmatic in that its only objective is to minimize suffering minimize rather suffering. than to eliminate conflict. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's sort of a realistic, it's, it's, an it's an acceptance that war exists, that people are going to kill each other. And that so the best way we can we can reduce harm is to kind of try and get people to agree to a minimum standard uh, for like prisoners of war and, and combatants. And so so would you say something like the Geneva Convention is an example of the latter one, the humanitarian law rather than the Geneva Convention is humanitarian law. I, I would say that they, they, they are by far and away the the backbone of absolutely everything and and all of the stuff i'm going to reference today that isn't um human rights law is going to come from the geneva conventions well uh, i promise not to, I, I won't throw articles at you well um uh i i don't know if uh, the grand empire is subject to the geneva convention but uh it is is our only sort of framework of, of, of reference so let's sort of um i i think the 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 burning question is and the one that we really brought you on here to talk about is why is the destruction of Alderaan a genocide, but not the the destruction of the Death Star? And just to to, to preface it, I will say that uh, Alderaan, when it was destroyed, I think had a population of several billion, but there are only about two million people uh, manning the Death Star um, who are all Imperial personnel, uh, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so exactly. Um, and uh, okay, so let 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 let's start digging into it, right? Um, so in in war, there are two main kinds of crimes, or actually technically three, right? There mm -hmm. are war crimes, um, which are encapsulated in the Geneva Conventions and in other treaties. There are crimes against humanity, which are a relatively new concepts, and they can apply both in peace and wartime, mostly coming from the Rome Statute that founded the International Criminal Court. And lastly, there are um, genocide, the, the, the crime of genocide, the crime of crimes, right? Which uh, rose out of the Nuremberg Tribunals. Yeah, of course. Um, after World War II. Uh, in fact, actually, uh, in 1941, when it was the, the sort of the crime was ever first ever addressed with the, the Nazi genocide, um, it, it, it was referenced as the crime without a name because mm. it had not yet been conducted on this scale. So yeah. what makes genocide specifically, right? And we can actually, we can look very quickly at the Genocide Convention, um, which came out in 1951. Uh, and it's in Article 2. It's a very quick read, but basically... It's where you attempt to destroy, and you have the special intention to destroy, in whole or in part, a specific protected group. That can be national, racial, religious, or um, ethnic. Mm. And uh, this, this can involve anything, from killing the members of the group, to forcibly transferring their children, to preventing births, to imposing standards of living that are you know, designed to bring about the destruction of that group. I, I, um, I, I just want to stop there yeah, for a second. Yeah. I think that's a very interesting point. Oftentimes, when people think about uh, a genocide, I think they, they, they jump to the most potentially extreme version of that, which is exactly. a gas yeah. chamber. But, um, yeah. you know, uh, the, the genocide of the Native Americans was uh, not, you know, the U.S. weren't building gas chambers. They were killing buffalo. And 
forcing native people to uh, um, basically starve, you know, or suffer major ecological, actually in a way, climate change, if you want to think about it like that. And and so um, these are very extreme examples that we're talking about in Star Wars. But um, I I think it's always important to remember uh, viewers at home that uh, everything comes in scales. And um, it doesn't, a genocide doesn't necessarily need to be uh, prosecuted at the barrel of a gun or a gas chamber. It can be the state mandating, uh, you know, that you have to attend cultural schools and your families have to be separated and, you know, so on and so forth. But uh, please carry on. Oh, no, well, absolutely. I mean, that's an excellent point. Um, Although, and this is another one I want to bring up, which is that um, even if we find today, right, that the destruction of Alderaan was not genocide, that doesn't mean it isn't a crime. It just means it isn't the very specific crime of genocide. It is still a crime against humanity. It is still a mass killing. It is still an, an, an unacceptable loss of life. But with the incredibly specific legal requirements that this, this term comes with, um, it may not be. And we can discuss this, but uh, yeah, let me not jump ahead too much. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so, so the big boy here, right, with genocide is the intention. Mm. That is the crux that the entire thing rests on. So the question we have to ask ourselves is when the empire destroyed Alderaan, did they intend to specifically destroy the people of Alderaan because of their allegiance to the nationality of, of the planet? Or did they intend to destroy them because of their allegiance to the rebellion? Hmm. And that's uh, my question to you. Well, um, I, I'm going to have to put on my empire cap because uh, I've yeah. spent too much time uh, reading wikis. But... Um, <laughs> So to, to take a small step back, the reason why uh, the Empire built something like a Death Star has to do with something called the Tarkin Doctrine. And uh, I hate to throw some you know, legal terms back at you, uh, but the Tarkin oh, Doctrine was a, uh, a philosophy and a, a legal doctrine, you know, like the Monroe, Monroe Doctrine you know, in, in, of the United States. Uh, and it was this idea that the Empire uh, could never govern the entire galaxy uh, without resorting to fear. So the Empire's control of the galaxy was essentially predicated on the idea that they were going to build very big, scary, intimidating war machines and subdue the galaxy through essentially fear. And the Death Star is the ultimate uh, representation of that because it is a weapon that is, you know, it's just one space station, right? And you could argue that they could build way more ships for the material cost that it, it produced. But when you think of people and they think, oh, no, the giant ball of death could shoot a laser and destroy all of us in a second... You know, that's that's what it, it was meant to inspire. And Absolutely. when when Tarkin decides to do the destruction of Alderaan, uh, specifically in the movie, he's talking to Princess Leia and he's basically uh, lording over the fact that, you know, he's in a, a position of preeminence. She is from Alderaan. So in a way, it is a personal attack against her. Uh, but yeah. also it is to punish the people of Alderaan for uh, essentially siding with the rebellion. Um and this, bear in mind, uh, I don't think would constitute, uh, you know, a reasonable re- uh, sense of retaliation. It's not as if they were only attacking a military base on Alderaan. They destroyed the entire planet. Um, yeah. And, and I think let's, let's segue again um, for a minor second here uh, into what you just said, which is proportionality, right? Hmm. So, so in any military action, because we'll get to military acts later, we're on genocide now. Yeah. But in any military <laughs> action, you, there are three things you've got to stick to, right? Precaution, meaning you've got to kind of avoid conflict if you can. Uh, necessity, meaning that you should only ever use force when there is absolutely no other alternative. And uh, pro- uh, proportionality, meaning that the force used should rep- you know, be proportional to the threat presented. 
by the target. Uh, does the destroying of a planet, is that proportional to the threat pre um, presented by the population of that planet? I don't think so. I think that's an obscene um, excess in the use of force, right? And I think most people would agree that that is too much. You could, you could easily cripple that planet's infrastructure by destroying the spaceports in the Star Wars setting um, rather than destroying the planet as such. There, uh, uh, there uh, is a historical yeah. precedent, actually. Um, uh, okay. In uh, Rogue Squadron, uh, the Empire destroys a city. They fly a single Star Destroyer over a city that um, you know, um, they're trying to uh, cow, and they basically reduce the city to glass. Um, it isn't until uh, you know, much later that um, the, this idea of overwhelming force uh, will really become sort of uh, canon, where the Empire will over-rely on super-weapons to deliver the, 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 this kind of force. But yeah, it, I, I would never make... I, you know, I could probably even make the claim that there were probably Imperials on Alderaan as well that were destroyed by the Blast, because... I'm sure um, they had security for them. I mean, they were everywhere, right? Yeah. Like, so they, they yeah. definitely talk. I mean, you know, it's important. Really it's important to note that Princess Leia is a member of the the Senate, right? She is a member mm -hmm. of the imperial, uh, ostensibly, you know, political system. And so, uh, Alderaan is a planet that is in the Empire. It's not as if they had always been, you know, um, uh, a successionist world. You know, they were essentially, you know, it, this would be like if the United States decided to nuke. Um, Vermont, <laughs> because uh, Bernie Sanders had, uh, you know, somehow managed to become a prominent political figure. That that is the kind yes. of way that I think of the proportionality. But uh, but yeah. please carry on. Um, well, I mean, that's, that's 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 I think an excellent point to continue on to the next point, which is um, where the intention comes in. So uh, as you've just said, um, they destroyed Alderaan as a retaliative move, right? As a, as a military a response, a, a way to instill fear in the remaining rebellion fighters, saying we can, we can eliminate planets at will, don't dare stand up to us. Um, and for, in order to be, and again, I know it doesn't really stick with the, uh, the, the common usage of the word, but in order for genocide to occur, there has to be something called dolus specialis, which is a very annoying Latin phrase, which means <laughs> special intent. <laughs> and it, it's, it's, it's essentially impossible to define this, and every court that's ever looked at it has come up with a conclusion. It sounds um, like a Dark Souls spell. It, it, it basically is at this point. It's, it's, it's as fictional. Um, but the, 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 the principle that it relies on is that the person committing the act, right, mm. has to do it with the express intention of destroying the group. Not killing a specific person, not destroying a specific target, not killing, not even instilling fear, but with the exclusive, specific intention of eliminating the group. So I think we can agree that Alderaan isn't a religious, ethnic, or racial group. Uh, there were many different species and peoples, and I'm sure different religions and ethnicities on the planet, but it is a national group, yeah. at least in the canon. Um, and that means it's a protected group under genocide, so there's no problem there. We know that in as far as the modern conception of genocide goes, Alderaan is protected. Hmm. However, the destruction of Alderaan, I don't think, and from what you've told me now, I mean, you're the expert on Star Wars. <laughs> uh, well, I, I don't think that um, the Empire had this specific intention to destroy the group because of their nationality. Hmm. They had the intention to destroy them because of their allegiance to the rebellion um, and, and to send a message, right? Hmm. Um, yeah. And that would mean that would mean that just strictly in this in the sort of textbook reading of the law that um, it would not be a genocidal act. It would be a crime against humanity, humanity and, yeah. and it would also be it would also be a war crime because of the fact that there was an armed conflict between yeah. the two. But it, it would not be technically 
genocide. You see, that's interesting because, you know, most people don't know the difference between a crime against humanity and, you know, a genocide. When people think of yes, a mass yes. destruction of people, uh, obviously, most people are attempted to think of a genocide, but I would totally agree with you there. Uh, Tarkin, you know, it's noted that the empire has done very specific ethnic cleansing, right? There are, uh, you know, examples, um, what they do to Kashyyyk, uh, the enforced enslavement and persecution yeah. of the, the Wookiees. That, yeah. that I, I would argue, that more constitutes, thing. that's ethnic yeah. cleansing. Um, yeah. But when they attack Alderaan, it is primarily simply because A, Princess Leia comes from Alderaan, and B, Alderaan was supporting Princess Leia. Um, you know, it, it's, exactly. it's, it's, it's still bad, and it, I would argue it's still in a, a terrible, horrible category, but, you know, it doesn't technically fall under the, the, the term genocide, which is, you know, very interesting exactly. to think about. So with and, that and, in... And this is... Uh, sorry, sorry. Oh, no, this please is, go this, okay. is, this is the important... This is the important point, is that um, it, does, it isn't genocide, but it's still a crime. Yeah. Um, it's a different crime. And, and, and I think people just think of genocide as meaning mass killing. And in the common usage, that's fine. But in, the, you know, in this sense, as you just mentioned, it, it, is, it is indeed uh, a war crime. You know, it's a persecution of a specific group for their allegiance to that group. Uh, even without the intention, and that's that's also a crime against humanity. <laughs> so and there's we, a lot of overlap between. Yeah, and we did um, note, uh, yeah. we did note that in the original Facebook post, it was essentially accusing Princess Leia of war crimes. You know, uh, yes. if I recall correctly. Yeah. So, so with that, with, <laughs> with that in uh, with that in mind, why? If of course the destruction of Alderaan is not a genocide, but it is a crime against humanity. It is a war crime. Oh, yeah. Why is the destruction of the Death Star not any of those things? Okay, so now we, 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 we actually have the opportunity here to go into, which, I, which I'm a bit more, sort of more experienced with, which is military necessity mm. and a legitimate military attack. Um, and so if there's an armed conflict between two, two groups, um, you can only ever use force under international humanitarian law where there you have a legitimate military aim that you seek to achieve. And under international humanitarian law, the only legitimate military aim is an attack which is designed to reduce the military potential of the enemy, basically. Mm. Um, so you basically, you can't just attack a city. You you, you know you can't just go in with with scud missiles and start you know bombing bombing uh, Lebanon. Um, you you need to have a a very specific military aim in mind that will be accomplished by your attack. Uh, and the design of this is, of course, to limit suffering and things. Yeah, you so can't just um... rebellion attack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, you can't just say, oh, I want to destroy, uh, quote unquote, their industrial capacity and then just blanket carpet bomb a city. You need to specifically say, I want to destroy this factory or that factory. Yeah. And there are limitations on um, what military necessity entails. So, for example, you can't blow up power stations because that would affect the civilian population. Yeah. Right. But you can blow up uh, a munitions factory, even if there are civilian workers there. Um, yeah. And it's not ideal. I know. I mean, this this is still allowing civilian suffering. But again, it is pragmatic. And that is the point of these approaches is to minimize harm, not so, prevent it. So talking um, in terms of yeah. minimizing harm uh, in the movie, right, I think the sort of the inciting moment is that we know the rebels know that the Death Star is bearing down on them. Uh, exactly. They, they know that uh, for every intent and purpose, the Death Star is only there at Yavin 4, I think it is for the express purposes of destroying the planet and killing the rebellion. Uh, and um, yes, it's true that the Empire does not say, for example, launch a preliminary strike, but they very definitely uh, are bringing the Death Star for that purpose and that purpose only. It's not as if they're sending yeah. a fleet, you know, that's a, that's a different story. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and that's just the thing is it doesn't need to be a different story. You know, the Rebe hmm. rebels could have destroyed every single super star destroyer in that fleet. Um, and it would still be a legitimate military attack if the threat was proportional to the use of force. So yes. in this case, the, the, the empire is coming with a planet killer weapon to kill a planet. That is the threat presented. So I would argue that the, a, a proportional um, response to that threat is to destroy the weapon in its entirety. I mean, the weapon is designed to destroy things in its entirety. They're destroying it, it in its entirety. Um, and, and, and so I think, I mean, as you said, we passed the necessity check. No problems there. They had to destroy this thing. It was about to destroy their planet. Um, so we, the use of force was necessary to negate the threat. And I think I argue here that, that the use of force was also proportional to the threat presented. It's, uh, it's a little bit of background, uh, background Star Wars knowledge, but uh, the attack shown on the Death Star, at least in the Legends continuity, I know some people will be very upset if I just mention it, but... Um, <laughs> oh, no, burn me at the stake. Um, but um, in the Legends continuity, um, there was actually a separate attempt by the Rebel Alliance to attack the Death Star. Um, okay. It'll come up later, but they, they used one of those big freighters, the Luger Hulk freighters, the one from Phantom Menace, and 500 yes. X-Wings to attack the Death Star. They did a full-on military strike with a, a mm. formal attack, and it didn't work. All of the, the ships were destroyed, and uh, that is why a lot of people might be wondering, okay, the Death Star is coming at them. Why do they only send maybe half, uh, maybe 20, or like... Uh, they send a very small number of fighters to attack the Death Star. And yeah, an insignificant number, you'd think, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, a couple of squadrons, basically. And you think, okay, well, why are they doing that? Well, you know, one explanation is that's all they have. But another explanation is uh, that's actually all they have because they tried this again and it didn't work. <laughs> and so you could, you could yeah. kind of, you could kind of argue that from the perspective of the Empire, at least, they don't expect it to work. Um, but you know, nevertheless, it does. Uh, which, yes. which sort of segues us into sort of, you know, the a question that I think everyone who is basically on the side of the empire will sort of bring up, and that is uh, the legitimacy of the rebellion. You know, uh, oh no, the rebels are the terrorists, <laughs> those, those kinds of people. Yeah. Um, how does the legitimacy well, of the empire affect what's going on here exactly? That's a fantastic question. It really is. Um, so we actually have some real world examples for this one, mm. right? Um, and I, I think, you know, we've got thousands of, or not thousands, we've got dozens <laughs> of dictatorships in the world at the moment. Um, and all of them are, you know, arguably illegitimate in their power. Again, mm. that's just perspective. Um, uh, you know, the, the right to democratic self-governance is, is not a right yet. Uh, and even it if it was, be. it would just be an excuse for the US to attack people. But the... Um, you know, the, 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 the legitimacy of Palpatine's rise, for example, you know, he staged a coup, he seized power um, from, a, from a democratic system, uh, is not a problem, hmm. um, at least regarding military necessity and the, uh, the use of force in under IHL, international humanitarian law. Yeah, that's... Uh, um... And the reason for this, is, it's just not an issue, which yeah. is thankful. Um, IHL doesn't care. It, <laughs> it, it doesn't care about who's doing killing, it cares about what killing is being done. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, yeah I do. And, and so basically, Somalia is a fantastic example of this, okay? You have a, a government that essentially doesn't exist. It's a, it's a coalition of warlords at best. It's, um, uh, and yet they are, you know, the IHL still applies. Even though the state of functionally does not exist, the law of armed conflict still applies to the people in its territory 
because the the state was originally a signatory to the Geneva Convention. Somalia is. I was just going to say Somalia is like the only place on earth where everything is basically an ANCAP paradise. That's what ANCAP. Uh, yes. It, that's yes, what anarcho capitalism looks so like. like. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But um, um, yeah. I'm sure a lot of the Americans reporting it would love to go there. Yeah. Uh, Please continue. Yeah. Um, oh, well, I mean, and then just moving on to things like dictatorships, right? Mm. Which is, um, we, we can look at the illegitimacy of their positions. Look at Assad in Syria. Ooh, you know, yeah. he, he sees power, he stayed in power. The internet loves the guy for whatever reason. I, I don't personally get it. Um, and he's got a. Uh, He's got an, an absolute sense of authority within the borders of the country. And even though that everybody who's attacking him, including the rebels and the U.S. and everybody else, does not view his government as legitimate, their attacks on his territory and their attacks against his troops are still governed by international humanitarian law. Hmm. It has absolutely nothing to do with the legitimacy of the government, uh, which is good, because that means that um, the legitimacy of the rebellion is equally unimportant hmm. regarding the use of force in these senses. And so, uh, um, we, we, the laws I, apply regardless of that, the political situation. That, that's really important because I think oftentimes a lot of people try to, like, you know, I, I've heard this kind of apologia from like the Nazis where it's like, oh no, you know, uh, the German government was a legitimate government and, you know, so on and so forth. And it's just like, exactly. no, yeah. no, that doesn't actually matter to the context of what they did. Um, yeah. But just so that I can disclose my biases, the empire was an illegitimate government. Uh, Palpatine did seize control of the Republic in a coup. And um, yeah, um, it, the rebellion are the actual remnants of the real legitimate Republic. Um, and it's no wonder that when the empire falls, and it's funny, it takes longer for the empire to fall than the empire actually existed, but that's, that's another kettle of fish. <laughs> the, well, in, fairness, in fairness to the canon um, with the new movies, that is actually a more logical approach. Uh, you know, it wouldn't just end when Palpatine yeah. died. You've got, um, you've got millions of officers who would continue. The, yeah, you know, uh, the the warlord period of of the Empire is actually my favorite period of Star Wars history because I think it's the most interesting, sort of politically and uh, sort of uh, sociologically, because the destruction of the Empire is longer. It basically it takes longer for the Empire to break up than the Empire actually existed, and so. Yeah. Um, you, you get to see different warlords, you know, as we, you know, talked about warlords previously. And uh, then you get to see the example of the Republic struggling to build itself and defend itself. But um, so we, 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 we've established that the, the rebels are basically attacking, I would argue, with a paltry re reaction of force in comparison to the Death Star. But they yeah. also basically have no choice. It's sort of kill or be killed. Um, oh, yeah. So they passed all the checks in, in, under IHL. I'll, I'll give my ruling here. Uh, I think I think I think that they're completely validated. And you know, just because it's a small number is fine. I mean, you know, if you send four Navy SEALs in to kill somebody, or you send thirty X-wings, a surgical strike is still a military attack. The yeah. scale of the strike is unimportant, but the, at least as far as the law is concerned. The people on the Death Star are military personnel. You know, it doesn't matter necessarily if they are. Uh, a guy whose job is just to weld, you know, rivets, or, you know, maybe they're like a stormtrooper commander. They're all military personnel. And yeah. it sucks that they all had to die, right? But this is kind of like the moral quandary that has been proposed. When you've got a system of overwhelming force, of overwhelming hatred, unfortunately, the time for civil discourse has kind of passed, you know? Every moment that could yeah. have been taken yeah. to stop the Empire from forming had already long since passed. They, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, we, we, we mock, uh, you know, uh, liberals and we, we sort of mock this liberal adherence to civility politics, but 
you know, Pat may say it, said it best, you know, democracy dies with a thunderous applause. No one stopped. The systems of the Republic didn't really jump in to say, hey, we should not allow this guy to have all the power. You know, maybe we should do something about it. And so the consequences of that kind of, um, you know, would uh, eventually cascade into, you know, the Death Star. And they blew it up twice. So <laughs> the Empire doesn't really learn. Um, no, they don't. So yeah, and, and I, just, just to wrap yeah. up on this this topic, because um, there is one last legal point yeah, that sure. I feel obliged to point out, which is combatant status. Mm. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a legal, it's a, this thing we call legal fiction, right? Which is like a little makeup story we make up for ourselves <laughs> just to help things work. Um, and and I thought the law was fake. Status, uh, yeah, well, I mean, everything's fake, isn't it? In the <laughs> end? <laughs> yeah. um, legal, legal fictions are quite useful. Uh, and combatant status is one of the few that actually has a real world application. Mm. And basically what it says is that um, anyone who is actively engaged in hostilities, um, if they're part of a, a state's armed forces, gains automatic combatant status. Uh, and what this means is that they can become the target of a legitimate military attack in exchange for the fact that their actions while they're fighting are not to be held against them individually. So it's kind of like a balancing of things. So the people they kill and the property they destroy as individuals under command of others uh, cannot be personally attached to them. Um, but the trade-off is that they can be attacked by other people. Okay. Uh -huh. okay. Um, so that's sort of like a, a balancing a balancing of status. Yeah. And it's just a pragmatic way to say, how do we deal with soldiers damaged legally? Hmm. Um, and it, it was kind of a, a write-off in the, the early 20th century. Um, so with combatant status, we, we have to look at how this applies to civilians. Because, you know, with the, with the deaths, with the stormtroopers, it's easy. Uh, whether or not they're conscripts doesn't really matter in this regard. They're members of the armed forces, and so they're legitimate targets. Um, but with civilian contractors, right, hmm. if they are actively engaged in combat, either manning a turret or something, or they're actively engaged in um, duties that directly support a combat role, like you said, welding together the TIE fighters or maintaining them or, you know, even janitorial stuff, arguably, keeping the space station functional. The they, they have, um, yeah, they have incidental combat status, meaning that in the event of an attack for that moment, during that attack, they are considered um, sort of incidental to the combat, meaning that they're kind of attached to it. They're not really combatants, but they have to be treated like them for the law to function. Yeah. Uh, and again, it's one of those just it's one of those trade offs we have to make in humanitarian law so that, you know, the people who are captured there, uh, everyone becomes a prisoner of war. Everyone gets prisoner of war rights, because mm -hmm. if you only the soldiers got prisoners of war rights and the civilians were just left, they would you know, they wouldn't have to be fed and things. So it's better to treat them as combatants for that moment so that when they're captured, they become POWs because um, only only combatants can become POWs. It is uh, then it is to just leave them yeah. open to the to, the, to the, the auspice of the enemy. Yeah, you know it is worth mentioning that um, I the rebellion are you know at this point it they aren't necessarily the nice guys just because they are the good guys doesn't necessarily yeah. mean they're the nice guys. You know we have lots of examples, especially from Rogue One, which is why I like that movie a lot, of demonstrating that the the rebel alliance is not this homogenous. You know we're only gonna throw the second punch kind of, you know, organization. There are people who are necessarily more extremist. There are people who would be doing things like targeting civilians because those civilians, you know, ostensibly agree to live under, you know, the oh, empire. Absolutely. And um, it, it's, and the it's... rebellion has no, no shortage of, of suicidal attacks of their own. You know? Yeah. Uh, people dive bombing into the, the surface of the Death Star and things, all of which we would assume are extremist views. In a yeah, it's, it, you know, it's, it's worth mentioning that oftentimes there is this meme that floats around where it's like Luke Skywalker, you know, uh, is 
is a, 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 a young farm boy from a desert planet who uh, gets adopted into a mystical religion and is radicalized to commit a terrorist attack. <laughs> I wonder yeah. what they're referring to. Yeah. yeah. And, and, um, and it's like, okay, yeah, sure. I mean, you do actually, you know, have some kind of a point, but uh, also at the same time, uh, the rebellion is not a fascist organization. It, it's, worth, it's worth mentioning that uh, after the Republic kind of gets established, uh, there is a large period of sort of legal and great work for the lawyers of the time where um, many of the actual stuff that the rebellion had to do comes under scrutiny where the Republic is like, yes, okay, you did all of these things. Now we have to, you know, basically they have like a, a truth and reconciliation committee uh, in yes. a way. Um, and that is like, yeah, they, they had to do that because they had to do some terrible things. And it's definitely not, you know, it's it's not the case that even though the movies show them as like morally cut and dry, it's not the case that one is perfect and one is, you know, imperfect. Um, but nevertheless, one is bad and one, you know, is less bad. Um, exactly. So I, I think... Uh, uh, can I? Yep. Sorry, continue. No, no, no. What, what were you going to say? I was going to ask you a question. Yeah, sure. Um, because the, the status of the rebellion, right, um, whether or not they're uh, an armed group or whether or not they're a coalition of states, mm. makes a huge difference regarding yeah. um, their, their participation in in the war um because okay basically very quickly under ihl there are two kinds of conflict there are international armed conflicts fighting between states you know nation Russia states, and china yeah. start duking it out um okay, and huh? nation states and there are uh, non-international oh conflicts. so non-state actors rebellions, exactly rebellions isis um the taliban al-qaeda extremist groups uh you know wars of uh, sort of uh, liberation that aren't really validated. The ones that are validated are actually considered international armed conflicts, like decolonization wars. You've got, you've got but some. The, uh, you've got basically on one side a organized nation state, on another side yeah. a dis- decentralized non-state actor group. Um, exactly. And what I want to ask you is whether or not you think, because this makes a huge difference, mm-hmm. and I can't decide whether or not you think the rebellion is a coalition of states like mm. the EU, because you've got Mon Calamari, Elderon, all of these different planets collaborating, or if you think that they're a, a sort of a, a state-funded um, non-state group? That is a very interesting question. I'm sure we could probably make a podcast just out of that question. <laughs> um, but, the, but the short answer is uh, yes and no. Uh, I think in the beginning, uh, I think in the beginning, uh, the... <laughs> oh, my dad is one, so, you know, it runs in the blood. But... Um, the the short answer is yes and no. In the very beginning, uh, the rebellion does not exist. Um, the the what we think of the rebellion are various different groups um, who are various degrees of legitimacy. You know, it's mentioned that uh, Bail Organa, uh, Leia's adoptive father, is a member of the imperial you know senate. I think he, he's a senator. I think, and he's planning with Mon Mothma, another important senator, to do you know, a rebellion. And so, uh, you know, in that sense, that's like, here are institutions from inside the state being like, okay, well, we need to overthrow this illegitimate government or something like that. But on the other hand, uh, then you look at a group like uh, Saul Guerrero's, uh, you know, partisans, or, um, you know, many of those other sort of fringe rebel groups, like the, the one that's depicted in Solo. And they basically are just bandits that are taking the opportunity to uh, galvanized their attacks on the empire as you know some kind of uh, more uh, ideologically motivated thing than it actually is in, in you know in yes. some sense and I think what happens in the yeah exactly in the beginning uh, you know it's in the beginning even Han Solo you know Han Solo is a smuggler he's wanted by the empire but 
it, it, in the extended canon, it's kind of established that, yeah, you know, he would do a lot of stuff that would hurt the empire, but also um, he became a symbol of the rebellion, not because he wanted to, <laughs> but because it was, you know, the most uh, pragmatic choice for him at the time. And I think that's really the way that you should think about the rebellion. It starts off as a disparate group of people um, who are uh, very loosely connected. You know, some of them are very much in, in it for the money. It's, it's, it's mentioned that many of the early uh, rebels, uh, the rebel cells, are actually comprised of like mercenaries and criminals <laughs> who are only interested in the money that they can get uh, by attacking the empire. But then later on, it coalesces, you know, uh, the Mon Cala, for example, when when they lend their legitimacy to the empire, to the rebellion, that really kind of galvanizes, you know, a lot of the, the rebellion into an organization of nation states that are representing uh, a free galactic uh, sort of republic. Um, and in the early days, it's definitely not the case, but I think it becomes more true, uh, especially in by the third movie. By the third movie, there's no doubt in my mind that the rebellion is just a combination of planets and federations of systems who are just acting as uh, opposition to the empire. Okay. Well, see, that's and then that, that's an excellent response. So, hmm. uh, and and this is the important thing to remember here: conflicts can change status over time, as we well know. You know, yeah. it started off as what was very under the modern. I know it doesn't really fit the galactic, you know, scenario, but in the modern conception, it started off as a non-international armed conflict, a bunch of random groups fighting, sort of vaguely connected oh, yeah. to you each know, other. Everyone's and, and thinking what from it was a, was a was a coalition of planets, yeah. uh, which in this case we'll call them nation states. Yeah, um, um, every just to summarize the the Yavin yeah. side of things, yeah, sure. so we can move on to the yeah. Federation. Yeah, sure. Um, the genocide of oh, the, the the destruction of Alderaan was not a genocide in the strict reading of the, uh, the, the 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 legal term. However, it was absolutely a crime against humanity and a war crime. And if we assume that the rebels were a, a coalition of states at the time, it is also a grave breach of the Geneva Conventions. Yeah. It doesn't apply to non-international armed conflicts. Yeah. Um, and then regarding the destruction of the Death Star, um, the attack on the Death Star was absolutely necessary and arguably proportional. Um, the, com the, 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 the Death Star itself was a legitimate military target. Um, the strike conducted by the rebels was uh, arguably proportional, again, to the attack. And the people on the Death Star were, at the time of the attack, uh, considered to have combatant status, hmm. meaning that their, their deaths were permissible, even if not ideal, under international humanitarian law. And uh, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, cool. All right. So, um, otherwise, I could go on for hours. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's um, <laughs> it's uh, it's always nice to talk Star Wars with someone who is also a nerd about other things. Um, so I, I thought we'd talk about the you know the Death Star because it, it is a very visible symbol of like okay, this is you know a complex, complicated human rights issue. But another one that that comes to mind, um, which is probably a little bit more contentious because the prequel trilogy is more contentious. Um, and that is the Trade Federation blockade of Naboo, uh, really the inciting incident of the Clone Wars, and um, to a lesser degree, basically the inciting incident of all of Star Wars, at least the, the movie trilogies. So um, a bit of background, um, private corporations are bad, <laughs> and um, they tend to chase after their profits. So in Star Wars, uh, believe it or not, there are actually private corporations. So there is a group... Um, which is the Trade Federation. And the Trade Federation is not so much a... You shouldn't really think of it as a collection of um, companies, uh, sorry, nation states, but rather as a 
combination of companies that kind of have a large amount of influence, right? And yeah. um, they were using what's called a free trade zone, which should immediately throw up red flags to do untaxed business. But then, uh oh, <laughs> the Senate passed Proposition 31 uh, 814 um, D, which is a completely uh, memorable name, <laughs> which <Yeah>. um, <laughs> which uh, made them taxable. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> That's this is, some, this is some powerful law, right? That, wow, the, I didn't realize the, we went into this Okay. So yeah, that that's literally it. The government is like, hey, you guys are uh not paying your fair tax burden. Um and so uh, we're going to pass a law that says you are eligible for taxation. And this angered the Federation, and so they retaliate against the established uh, you know government by blockading the planet of Naboo. Um now um, Naboo is a is kind of like an idealized planet in a way because it has like this weird kind of combination of constitutional monarchy and democracy. It has a queen, but the queen is kind of elected. And um, at the time, the queen is uh, 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 Amidala, who is um, well, uh, she's the incumbent. Uh, she's the fa sorry favorite candidate uh, candidate um, to become the queen. Um, I guess she's a princess. Uh, it, it's weird, <laughs> but. Um, yeah, Naboo is blockaded by the Trade Federation, and they do this by uh, bringing a large number of ships to surround the planet and prevent uh, trade from, and, and of course people, from going off and into, uh, into the planet. And it's important because uh, there's a little-known senator, a country boy by the name of Sheev Palpatine, who is the current senator of Naboo, and uh, suspiciously, he's really vocal about what is going on here. And, uh, of course, you should know that uh, Sheev Palpatine is, of course, the emperor. <laughs> but a funny name, Sheev. Sheev sounds... Sheev the first time. I've always heard it pronounced as Sheev. And I, I think it's just funnier that way, because Sheev sounds like the guy who is outside the 7-Eleven, who constantly is asking you to watch him do sick tricks on his skateboard. <laughs> but you just want to go and buy a packet of cigarettes and get on with your day, you know? that that That's like the... <laughs> well, it comes to mind. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And um yeah, so uh eventually what happens is the the people of Naboo do not like the fact that they are blockaded. Um and it's a month long blockade. In fact, it actually has a de de deleterious effect because Naboo is a planet that depends quite heavily on international or rather interplanetary trade. And so uh it basically induces kind of a famine on the planet. Uh, which then ends in a uh, military uprising of the indigenous people of Naboo, the Gungans, yeah. and uh, the human settlers, uh, I guess you would call them colonizers, really, um, the, uh, the native Naboo. And uh, they work together to literally uh, do a uh, 1766 and kick out the Trade Federation. And uh, yeah, uh, I, I just sort of like to, to, to sort of, you just sort of walk us through the legal framework here. So what's 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 important? Do you do you think what what, what people should learn from this? The first point here, um, and and I must say, I, you've given me more gray hairs with this question than you might expect. <laughs> is that there is not a clear answer to this Ooh. question, um, and and it's and it's because of the status of the trade federation, because yes. they're a company and not a collection of states. International law doesn't deal with them. Look at the word international law. Mm. It is, it is, it is a, a set of rules that, that political bodies have agreed to, right, mm. to, to govern themselves. And companies, until very recently, just were never at the scale 
required to engage in international politics like they do now. Um, this is this is very much a modern phenomenon and one that international law is cripplingly behind on. Hmm. Um, but I think we can. So so I'm going to tell you right now, there is not a clear answer to this. Oh. But there are some really interesting uh, real world examples of something very similar happening, and uh, you'll know all about these. Hmm. But in uh, Central and South America, with the in the 60s, right with, after their wars of liberation, you had these massive fruit, uh, fruit plantation companies coming in <laughs> and uh, setting up a oh, dole, yeah. for example. I mean, can you imagine dole? You know, the, the banana people yeah. being this like super evil uh, multinational and and they literally did this they they, they but, took over the role of the national government hence the phrase um, and banana republic right profits. yeah and uh, and it's very similar to what the trade federation did you know they they co-opted the the exports of the country the food of the country they they essentially held the population ransom um at uh and basically you know in order to further the corporate goals and and this is you know, somewhat more subtle, but uh, quite comparable to um, what happens with the Trade Federation in Naboo. That's a bit more of a brunt, sort of brunt force. You know, I uh, will, <laughs> I will, I will mention um, the the interesting thing about the Trade Federation is that it is actually capable of buying its way into the Senate. So they actually exactly. do have a a senior. It, it's like a senior position inside the Federation is oh, you're just the Galactic Senator, which is really strange. That would be like if. Coke <laughs> had uh, members yeah. in like or Amazon, parliament or, or, or probably more Amazon. Yeah. And um, that's really, really strange. Um, but yeah, you know, they is, is the, is the, you know, ignoring the fact that of course the trade federation is a private corporation, right? Is what the trade federation does to Naboo. Is that, would you consider that maybe a crime against humanity? Um, I would. And, and I'll, I'll, we're going to turn again to the, the Rome statute here. Yeah. Uh, and I, I wish I'd sent this to you ahead of time. But um, <laughs> under Arti- okay, I'll, I'll give you the list for, for the reader at home, a little bit of homework. Remember, um, guys, we've got homework. Uh, we'll be doing a quiz in two weeks. <laughs> under Article 7, okay, it's on the hmm. third page of the Rome statute. It's very easy to find. You just type it into Google. Um, the Article 7, 1... Oh, I have to try and find it now. I will probably be including a reading list at the the description of the video. So if you are actually interested in reading, uh, we will have links to things. Okay, excellent. Uh, There's there's two provisions under the Rome Statute Hmm. that are of importance here. Uh, Article 7, 1i and k. Yeah, I is the enforced disappearance of persons because we know that um, when the Trade Federation came in, they did a bunch of kidnappings and disappearances, and you know people people went missing from government so that they would be replaced by Trade Federation officials, uh, yeah. and, you know, in order to control things. Um, we've also got uh, K, um, which I think is actually the one that's it's it's sort of a catch-all clause. It's any other inhumane acts of similar character, intentionally causing great suffering or serious injury to body or mental or physical health. They do, they, they do deploy exactly. tanks to the streets. They do deploy tanks. I think we can, we can think of a lot of examples rising out of this that would mm. uh, that would validate this crime against humanity. Um, and, and the big boy here, but again, and this is why if we treat the Trade Federation as a company, they get away with it. Mm. Because this only deals with the organized, um, systematic, and widespread approach of states, mm. specifically state policy. So if, if we deal with them as a company, you know, the, these laws are intentionally specific, um, sometimes too specific. And so if we deal with them as a company, then there's just no framework. Uh, at best, Naboo would have a domestic law claim 
yeah, um, against for the, the Federation and, and, and things like this. But on the international level, under the modern primitive laws that we have now, you know, um, the, this, this, just, this just isn't encapsulated. And so it's very difficult to answer. Um, would, you, would you mind answering one last question for me here regarding yeah, yeah. this? Because you'll know. Um, was there any deportation or forcible transfer of the population? During, okay, during so this? so it, it here's where I bring up racism. <laughs> okay, hey, let's do it. Okay, yeah. so it's it's <laughs> worth I, I mentioned you know the Gungans are the indigenous people, right? And it's worth mentioning that um, the the planet of Naboo was originally occupied by the Gungan people. Now, they don't necessarily live on the surface. They live in deep underwater cities because they are an aquatic species. Um, sure. But um, they, there's always kind of been a conflict between uh, the humans on the, on the planet, not necessarily an out-and-out war, but sort of, a, sort of a disagreement between, you know, territory and things like that. And it is kind of you know, it is kind of implied um, that um, a there are sort of there was maybe a faction within um, the sort of native you know Naboo people like hey you know maybe if we side with the Federation we can use them to you know uh, get more concessions against the Gungans you know something like that yeah. um, and then also um, there was a. Uh, of course, um, also uh, the gunning down of unarmed civilians. <laughs> um, yes. During the during the early days of the occupation, uh, uh, and, and this is of course legends, you know. So take this with a grain yeah. of salt. But uh, a number of sort of protests would uh, you know spring up, and uh, the battle droids, because they were badly programmed and they were cheaply programmed, <laughs> they just started gunning people down. Um, uh, and um, you know that that was. Uh, the, the kind of sort of like, the, yeah, they were trying to get rid of people uh, who were pro, um, you know, pro-independence, pro-Naboo and move them around. Um, the droids were basically uh, displacing, you know, uh, you know, groups of farmers. Uh, and um, actually, I think they were taking slaves. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, I mean, the, the checklist is getting longer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, the 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 Trade Federation actually, I think, built us. They built a, They brought like biological weapons onto the planet. Um, to yeah. potentially subjugate the people, but you know, I I, I think I've more more or less met the brief. Um, no, but you have, and, and and so what what this actually does, basically, because I mean, look, my my knowledge of the law isn't quite as in depth. Probably should have rewatched the movies, but, um, the, but we already have just, we've, we've pretty much hit F, from, from A to K, you've pretty much hit every single crime against humanity. Hmm. Um, and you know, we've got murder, we've got enslavement, we've got de uh, deportation or forcible transfer, putting people into the groups, uh, imprisonment and other severe deprivation of physical liberty, uh, torture, of course. Uh, I don't think you mentioned any droids raping people, but that would potentially be one as well. <laughs> and then there's the very obvious persecution of the Gungans, yeah. um, and that and that would uh, that would absolutely become. Uh, now, in fact, I would say that probably the strongest case. It, is, it's is uh, it's it, it's worth mentioning that, of course, a united human Gungan sort of coalition, you know, under under Padme is brokered, and they're you know ultimately responsible for throwing the Federation out. But it is definitely yes. true that um, there was, you know, more of a hostility to the Gungan people. Um, and, uh, you know, that's just kind of the way that people sort of, you know, think about, like, uh, uh, let me give you a good example. Like, 
the most obvious example of the way that this is sort of presented is that the Federation doesn't actually openly start killing uh, civilians in the capital, you know, uh, of Naboo until there's actually like an actual real insurrection led by the palace, you know, guards, right? But the yes. minute they see the Gungans organizing, you know, moving, you know, with their fairly uh, simplistic weaponry to the outskirts of the city, they mobilize an entire army with battle tanks to just, you know, yes. go and crush them. And um, I, it, it, it's difficult to look at those situations and be like, yeah, you know, there's no uh, sort of thing. I also just wanted to mention quickly, um, it is worth mentioning that they did deliberately take steps to exacerbate the famine on Naboo uh, by sort of, there were people who were trying to bring food, you know, shipments of grain and stuff like that, and they would turn them away. And so even people who weren't involved in the conflict. So it's, it's clear yes. that, um, yeah. Oh, and, and here we here we've got okay. So I think it's I think it's fair at this point to say you know we we know if we look at it as a corporation we don't have anything. But I think let's talk about them as a state because it's more interesting. Actually, I mean, if they've got positions on the republic, and, <laughs> I do have a, I do have a point here actually. Um, so it's implied, uh, it's yeah. implied, um, you know, from sort of reading into the development of the movies and stuff like that that the trade federation is distinctly based on a real world historical entity, uh, the British East India Company, right? And um, mm. the Dutch East India Company. And those, were, we know, were some of the first examples of transnational corporations, right? They were nation states under, you know, capitalism that had formed basically by companies. They, they formed into these big companies. And even though they weren't states, they were run by shareholders. They had the right to wage wars, negotiate treaties, make colonies. Yeah. And the Trade Federation. Yeah, um, exactly. The, yeah. the Trade oh, Federation. Yeah, let's, 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 yeah. Okay. Sorry. Let me just let's just let's do away with the issue right away, and let's define them as a state and be done with it. Right. So you've got four requirements for state. You've got territory, population, governance, and um, uh, one other one, which I've forgotten now. <laughs> but I mean, the territory is an obvious no problem. They've occupied Naboo. Cool. We've yeah. got territory. They have effective governance if they're able to engage with the. Um, you know the political sphere of the of the the galaxy, so that's done. They have a population. You know whether or not it's uh, they've got their their employees and their their permanent members, and they've got the people that they've got under their occupied control. Um, and then whatever the fourth requirement is, I'm sure they met that as well. I, I didn't put my notes down for this one. <laughs> um, so let's call them a state. And We're professionals, people. Their, let's look at their response to the the Gungan threat, right? Yeah. Because I think I'm trying to because I mean look, there are hundreds of things we could discuss with each of these cases, and I'm trying to keep it all sort of relatively hmm. um, in line. And uh, we can I think we can just look again at military necessity. Because um, since, like I said, like I told you, we've got the three texts, right? The three yeah. tests is the precaution, necessity, and proportionality. Um, precaution uh, is arguably there. They they had you know non-lethal means in place to suppress a rebellion um, yeah. already there, and so they they took steps to avoid an all-out war. So even though the, their methods were harsh and immoral, they they were there to avoid all-out war. Um, was there necessity to respond to the Gungan army with an army of their own? Arguably, yes, right? We're taking it from the yeah. side of the Trade Federation here. Um, and now, but was there, was there proportionality? Um, so you've got an army of how many Gungans was it? Um, uh, so let's, I had it written down. Um, about, wait, oh boy. Oh, my, my notes. <laughs> it's about, <laughs> yeah, they have... Um, 
the Grand Gungan army is like several thousand Gungans plus a number of support animals. They don't have any like tanks or anything like that um, yeah. or aircraft. Okay, perfect. So they, they, we have a fairly primitive force, right? Coming up against a significantly more technologically advanced force. Yeah, battle droids. Um, uh, exactly. With tanks and, tanks and, uh, and armor and whatnot. Um, and so, you know, this is, this, is, this is a very good analogy, of course, for, for the wars of colonization, isn't it? And I'm pretty sure that's what Lucas was going for when he did it, was, you know, you have, and even modern day wars like in Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, you've got the U.S. with these ludicrously um, advanced weapon systems uh, going up against guys with Kalashnikovs. Yeah, it is. Um, it is. And, you know, and, and, I, I spoke earlier about sort of asymmetrical warfare. It is like the Gungans have, <laughs> you know, catapults and adaladles, and you know they have like they have like it's not like they're using sticks and stones, right? The stuff that they're no. using, maybe it's a catapult that shoots a, uh, you know, a ball of energy, or they have you know deflector shields, but. The deflector shield is mounted on an animal, and the Gungans have to ride to battle, you know, on foot or you know, on a on an animal. Whereas the the droid army has mobilization tanks, air support. It it the Gungans yeah. are basically slaughtered, and it isn't until yeah. the ship is destroyed, the control ship uh, uh, in orbit, that the Gungans actually have a chance at, at at you know not dying. Yes, and that and this is where my I, I'm I'm going to say it right now. This is going to be an unpopular opinion. But I think that the Trade Federation's use of force in this regard was proportional. And it's for this mm. explicit fact that they landed a land army. Mm. They didn't deploy air units. They didn't, they didn't just nuke them from orbit. Yeah. Right? They, they deployed a, an, an army to that very specific, very localized area of an enormous planet to deal with the threat directly. Um, mm. And under IHL, that is a legitimate use of force. You know, he, they, only, they didn't attack civilians in that specific attack, at least not, not in the movie. They just attack the combatants, um, and you know, arguably, by using droids and not by using personal soldiers, they limited the amount of deaths you <laughs> yeah. know, that, that occurred. You know, that um, is so, um, just uh, yeah. sort of quickly. That is actually for something that is very interesting, and it, I guess also important to sort of thinking about this is like the Trade Federation is described as always using mechanized soldiers, mechanized commanders, mechanized forces. Even their ships are basically yeah. autonomous. And uh, you could obviously, you know, talk about the viability of using AI to kill people. But, you know, on the other hand, um, you know, they are ultimately minimizing harm by just using expendable, you know, droid soldiers, whereas the, the yeah, Republic will eventually raise, both sides, <laughs> the, uh, the Republic will eventually raise uh, clone soldiers. But, you know, that's, uh, that's neither here nor there. It's, um, it's pretty interesting. And maybe one day we will we'll get back to that. Um, yes. But I just sort of, you, you know, wanted to wanted to round round, the, round this out a little bit. So Naboo is a less obvious but equally, you know, kind of complicated political situation. Uh, we know that, yes. you know, the Trade Federation uh, they do this because, you know, they're ultimately chasing money. The reason why they do this is really just, you know, for money, monetary gains. But it's also worth mentioning that uh, Palpatine uh, orchestrated this entire thing because he was originally kind of the push for the taxation. That kind of drove them. So this whole thing was sort of orchestrated from within. But nevertheless, we can learn that like even even uh, there are basically problems with the law and the way that the law thinks about like private corporations. And uh, sort of the last yes, kind of point that I'd like to talk about is: Do you think that um, this is maybe deliberate, or is it just kind of a unhappy accident uh, with the way that history has panned out? It's a very good question. Um, and uh, much like you said earlier, it's yes and no. 
so this is the classic lawyer's answer, which is, it depends. Uh, and it's completely help. It's not, it's not useful at all, uh, but it is, it is unfortunately the case. Um, so whenever uh, international law is made, it's a political decision, ultimately, right? You've got the governments of states coming together and deciding to agree to treaties, whether they're unilateral, like uh, whether they're universal treaties, like the Geneva Conventions, where yep. everybody has to sign, or if they're just simple bilateral treaties between two states. International law is created by political decisions. Yes. Um, political decisions are very obviously informed by the political needs and economic desires of the state. Um, and if the modern nation state is capitalist, that is just an acceptance we have to make. Um, and that means that their uh, modern modern decisions are going to be capitalist. Yeah. And I would argue that the um, the position in international law at present is a mixture of negligence and intentional sabotage uh, regarding the role of things like companies. Um, as you mentioned, large multinationals have been a thing since long before the UN even existed, uh, hundreds of years at minimum. And they've had this sort of weird uh, sort of quasi-state status in international law where they, they can't really make treaties, but they, they can you know, uh, negotiate with states and they can hold territory even if they can't really um, assert specific authority over it. Um, it's, it's a corporate headquarters rather than a country, you know, until a, until a government gets involved, then it becomes a colony. Um, yeah. And so when the law developed um, after World War II, I mean, this, this law is primitive. Hey? It's like barely 70 years old, really, all this stuff. And, um, you know, when the law developed, it was... It was, I think, done with, with that colonial mindset in mind of um, keeping the, the accountability of the state to a minimum. And necessarily, since the state is, is funded by companies and, and, and is made up of, of political decisions, it kept the accountability of those companies and political decisions to a minimum hmm. as well. Um, so as to, yeah, well, just to, just to increase <laughs> the political position of the states in power. Uh, and I think that looking into a modern framework, um, it is very much known that this is a gap. Uh, there's there's no no allusions to this. The 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 UN is aware of corporate overreach. Um, the EU has made some excellent gains in in limiting corporate potential um, with regards to things like profit profit limitations in Germany and uh, and uh, you know accountability for human rights abuses um, in third world countries that they are in, placed in. And I, I hate that phrase, but it's the phrase that they put in documents, mm. unfortunately. Uh, developing countries is the new one, um, and the and and so so what we run into is is ultimately, and I think you'll agree here that there is an uh, there are both elements of negligence and sabotage. Yeah, uh, in the current position, in the current gaps we see. Yeah, um, I, I I just there's one last thing that I want to talk about, and it it circles yes. way all the way back to the original reason why I wanted to you know the original post, and uh, yeah. this is why do people why do you think people are so eager to defend the empire and this is not just something that i see you know on one or two random posts if you go to any video on youtube you know if you go and google uh empire you know gameplay footage or if you heaven forbid look at uh, like you know uh some specific like empire style you know videos with the empire the protagonists you will often see people say something like yeah. oh the empire did nothing wrong or you know uh, the rebels of the terrorists, or you know, I can't wait to serve the empire, or stuff like that. Why do you think people do that? Mm -hmm. Because the the empire is, you know, obviously supposed to be fascist uh, yes. in their symbols, their behavior, 
the, it, the fact that deliberately the empire is very uh, homogenous, it's made up of very specifically sort of the, the white white dudes as a, a statement, whereas, you know, the rebellion, uh, at least, you know, on practice is supposed to be more diverse. And there are more aliens, you know, in, in the rebellion than there are in the empire because the empire is human supremacist because racism is not really quite the same thing in Star Wars as it is in the real day. But you can see there are analogs, right? So why do you think that is? Well, I mean, uh, first off, uh, I do often wonder how the Empire manages to maintain their numbers with only white dudes in it. You'd think they'd have to breed at some point. But, <laughs> oh, they're, they're, I'm sure they've got, like, clones or something. Why do people follow fascist regimes in the first place? Um, hmm. why, does anyone, why does anyone become nationalist in the first place? And I, I think it's, it's an inherent desire in people to um, look for authority. For, for answers, for, for strength, um, to look for an external explanation and an ratification for certain beliefs. Uh, you know, it, we, can, we can talk for days about, you know, the formation of religions and, and nation states and things on these premises where people, people collectively um, seek to, to, to externalize their, their, own, their own desires and needs and to try and get a sort of a strong statement a strong status that can that can protect them, um, and I mean, if we look on, I think we need we need to also be able uh, a bit more look between the lines and accept that most of it's probably just idiots memeing. Mm. Uh, I when I was sixteen, I, I was definitely yeah. a lot stupider than I am now, and uh, <laughs> I probably I probably would have said think the empire did nothing wrong, thinking I was very smart, um, and and of course you know there are also those people. Let's take Arch Warhammer, she shall not be named, or Sargon of Akkad, you know, in the YouTube community, who are very much pro these ideologies. And then you have their supporters who are pro them being pro those ideologies. Mm. And I think that it's it's this attraction to authority, um, which is a mixture of schooling, propaganda, raising, and also I think just an inherent need to find a, a strong external authority you can look to for both protection, inspiration, and uh, you know, just personal safety. Yeah, you know, uh, I, and I, something like the Empire, it presents that, doesn't it? You know, I, it's uh, a big, unmovable <laughs> object. That I, uh, get yeah, I think yeah. Uh, a lot of people, and I hate to use this phrase, I think that there are a lot of insecure men who are looking for a daddy. <laughs> oh yeah, oh, oh, and, um, daddy is he's right there for them. Yeah, yeah. You see, that's the uh, fascism has always played on male insecurity, right? If you look at the original propaganda, you know what what are what are the German Nazis talking about? They're talking about the emasculation of the German worker. They're talking about that's the right. humiliation of the German worker, right? You know, they're they're selling them this idea that oh, you were great, but now you've been made weak, and therefore we can make you strong again, and we can give you back a sense of your dignity. But like, it's obviously not necessarily the case that that was, you know, the, the issue, um, especially sort of World War One has no good sides, right? There aren't really any good no. people. It's just a bunch of aging monarchs uh, blundering themselves into a, a worldwide conflict. But it, it, it's clear that the economic consequences of World War One laid the groundwork, you know, for sort of fascism. And I think particularly with the empire. I think one of the things that makes them the way that they are is because aesthetically they are a lot better than the the rebellion. <laughs> um, yes. They they yeah. ooze power and uh, I, you know oftentimes people call them stable, right? You know the argument that I hear a lot is oh you know the empire might be bad but at least they are capable of governing the galaxy, which is very similar to the statement oh you know that Germany was uh, Nazi Germany was bad but at least they were you know repairing Germany which they weren't but. Um, yes. it, it, it comes down to the, I think that George Lucas, uh, unfortunately, 
when he was designing the empire, I think he had it in his idea, in his head, that, oh, I'll just design these guys. They'll be coded as Nazis. Everyone will see that. Um, everyone will think the rebellion is cool. And I think what has happened over time, because of cultural distancing between ourselves and you know the actual Nazi Nazi party, is that a lot of the aesthetics that originally made the empire and you know by extension sort of the Nazis, uh, you know, visually distinctive in comparison to you know the utilitarian you know mundane other nations who were actually interested in doing war you know more correctly than the Nazis were, uh, it has meant that the empire stands out. Everyone can recognize, I guarantee you, most people could not actually name what uniform a Rebel Alliance soldier is supposed to wear, but everyone knows what a stormtrooper looks like. Everyone knows what Darth Vader looks like. These are the symbols that have, over time, lost their original connection to fascism because the people who grew up knowing, hey, these guys are direct stand in for Nazis, well, now they're boomers and. Um, <laughs> And, uh, you know, they're much older and it's like, hey, uh, the cultural connotations are not quite there. And there's enough of a distance between what the empire does, you know, because at no point in time does the empire go, we are the pro-human faction. Aliens are scum. No. You know, they don't say it. I mean, they definitely do it, but they don't say it. They don't say it. And yeah. um, that gives enough people plausible deniability. And, you know, of course, Star Wars is a cool thing and it definitely attracts um you know, like you said, uh, edgy teens. I was one myself. And, um, you know, you look at the Empire and you think, oh, wow, these guys are really cool. They have all the cool, you know, uh, mechs and they have all the cool, you know, stuff. And um, I think maybe it's only the, the fact that the, I just thought the X-Wing was the coolest ship ever that I think maybe saved me <laughs> from, <laughs> uh, from writing. I really liked it. I just yeah. thought they looked better. <laughs> that, was, that was what got me in. <laughs> oh, yeah. And when I saw Mace Windu with the purple... Yeah, so, man. When know. I saw Mace Windu with a purple lightsaber, I, I think also this is one of the reasons why a lot of people have a, a strong uh, attachment to the Republic. Uh, because the Republic are supposed to be, hey, we're on the side of democracy, even though, you know, it, it, it's very questionable there. But the Republic has many of the same aesthetics of the Empire, which should make it very obvious why, you know, that is. They are the predecessors of them. Uh, and it's a little bit less morally complicated. But, um, yeah, I think we've I think we've talked enough. <laughs> if uh, if anyone is still actually listening. um uh thank you thank you for listening uh this far um i i hope you enjoyed the first episode of the people's podcast um miles uh would you like to shout anything out while you're here any any social media any anything that uh people can find you on if they want to, to hear more of you uh yes absolutely um my uh i have a youtube channel um, Ooh, where yes. i upload incredibly subpar gaming content uh, called largely unemployed <laughs> Uh, hopefully, I'll get Emilio a link, and he can he can link it in the description of this. It this will video. be in the description um, of the video. I don't anything for a moment. It'll be a little while before I do, but please go check it out uh, if you want to hear my voice. And uh, very soon, some some more videos on these topics using the framework of games yes. to explain humanitarian concepts. Um, I will definitely be having you on um, in some point in the future. I would love for this to become a, a you know a semi regular thing, um, but I also want to have Absolutely. other guests on as well. Um, so we'll see where it goes and where this, the, the schedule goes. But uh, thank you again, Miles, for um, for coming over and uh, geeking out with me about Star Wars and also teaching people about human rights law. I hope that everyone, you know, comes. I certainly did uh, learn a lot. So I hope everyone comes away from this, you know, thinking a little bit more about our favorite space Nazis 
And um, yeah, I, 